Alex, 27-year-old man, received a call from his mom encouraging him to, to check up on his old Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam was in the hospital. He was in critical condition. And Alex started thinking this thing through a little bit. He never did like Uncle Sam. Always referred to him as Ugly Uncle Sam. From his moment he could remember, his Uncle Sam would always come by, but he was just, just straight up ugly. He was deformed in some ways, and he was just wanting to be near him, and he was always afraid of him. And so he shunned him. And Uncle Sam would come by uh, often, and uh, Alex would uh, mock him a little bit after he left. Uh, Uncle Sam would go to his games as he got older, and Alex would make sure when he left, he left the other way so he wouldn't be seen with him. Well, his mom said, now you need to go see him. He's in the hospital. His health is finally caught up with him. Uh, he's about done. And so Alex started thinking with all these reasons why he couldn't be there. And his mom finally stopped him and said, hang on, hang on. I've got to tell you this. He'd be angry if I told you this. He made me promise not to tell you, but I'm going to anyway. When you were a baby, right after you were born, your father passed away, and your uncle lived next door, and I was next door visiting with my sister, and we heard all the sirens. We came outside, and our home, your home, was engulfed in flames with you upstairs in your bedroom. I tried to run in, and the firemen held me back, and about that time, your Uncle Sam came home for, for lunch, and he knew what was going on immediately, and he just ran into the house. And he went up to your room and he got you and he was burned severely and he found the window and he dropped you into the fireman's arms and then he just fell out, broke his back. You've wondered why he's had a limp. He spent the last, or spent six months in the hospital, almost died multiple times. And now do you wonder, Alex, how you got to college? Because since your father was gone, Uncle Sam felt a responsibility. They couldn't have children, and he so much wanted you over the years to go fishing with him and to be the, the boy he couldn't have, but you would have none of it. But that didn't deter him. He got an extra job to pay your way through school. Now, he's dying. I think you need to go see him. Now, if you were Alex, this would make a major difference, wouldn't it? Now, Uncle Sam never changed. Now, nothing changed historically. What changed in this scenario is you, right? You understood a little bit more of who he was, what he did for you. And, and that changed your, your feelings toward him. That changed your relationship with him. We believe the same thing with our God, that in our worship of God, it's, it's going to be directly dependent on our knowledge of him. And since he's infinite and since he's eternal, there's no way any of us have got God figured out. We understand everything there is to know about God. We barely scratch the surface. But we can get deeper, I believe. And the deeper we go, the more worship, the more real our worship will be. I think when we read the Bible sometimes about them worshiping forever in heaven, we're kind of like, you know, this is, what else do you do? I guess beats going to hell, I suppose, so that's what I'll do. Uh, but that's because we view worship from our earthly eyes. But can you imagine when you understand Uncle Sam with everything and his fullness? Can you imagine you understand God in every area? What greater thing could there possibly be than being with him and in, in worshiping? So we started at the beginning of this worship series 
our FAC Summer Challenge, the Worship Project. And we encouraged you to, we grabbed a, a text, the Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer, we encouraged you to get it. We sold like 300 of these, and you know, some of them are used by double, multiple people. Uh, a handful of folk downloaded it on their Kindle. That's a thin book, right? About 23 chapters in it. And what we encouraged you to do is you would go through the book, is, is read the four or five page chapter, uh, first time through, underline, and when you get done, pray it through. Then after you finish the whole book, if you do one a morning, then you should be done by now with the first time through. We said go through it a second time. And the second time as you go through it, when you get done, we want you to write a psalm. Do you remember this when we said this? You don't remember this? Uh, I, I said way back then that on this day, first Sunday in July, I was going to talk about writing psalms and Hebrew poetry. You're going, oh, geez, Louise, what a morning to come, right? It's a wasted morning. No, 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 just just work with me uh, on this. Because I know some of you, as soon as we say that, some of you shut down. You know, that's those uh, right brain people and artsy people, and it's, 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 it's useless and stupid. We have a propensity. You do. You've got to know this about yourself. I do. All people do. To demonize that which we're not familiar with that which we're not comfortable with, that which we don't like. It can't be good enough that we just don't like it. It's got to be demonized. We've got to demonize it. And on this sort of a thing, we can do the same thing. So let me encourage you as we go through this morning to be open about this idea. And really what we're getting at is this idea of journaling because there's no spiritual discipline of psalm writing, but there is a spiritual discipline of journaling. Spiritual disciplines are those things we can do to help us grow closer to Christ. And you need to know, other than prayer and Bible memory, there has been nothing in my life, no individual discipline greater than journaling that has, has transformed me. I picked this up when I was in high school, through college. It was been amazing, helping me sort out and understand and, and work through things. I believe that a life not reflected on is a life half-lived. And let me encourage you strongly to, to understand what the great saints have understood. Amy Carmichael journaled. Jonathan Edwards journaled. Jim Elliott journaled. Dawson Trotman journaled. It's hard to find somebody who God has really used who has not. Now, we're not talking about just keeping a diary. Biblical journaling is a little bit, it's a little bit different th- than that uh, because journaling has to happen with your Bible open, basically. It's, it's very, very theological. Uh, now, this is real important for us because very few commands in Scripture command us to read the Bible. Part of the reason is probably they didn't, they didn't have printing presses. Everybody didn't have one. You didn't have that at your disposal. But number one, beyond, way beyond that, is to meditate. And you know, meditation is not the same thing as reading, right? I can read the paper. I can read, I can read the Bible. Meditation is to stop and to chew on it and to think it through and to think it sideways and to think it backwards and to see, okay, how does this interact with my life? God, how does this? That's why Psalm 1, fascinating. First Psalm in the book in the book of Psalms. And the book of Psalms was going to be the prayer guide for the temple. It was going to be the hymnal for the temple. Very first psalm. It's not there by accident. No prayers in that first psalm. But it sets the stage for the rest of them. And that's why he he says, Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't focus and listen to the influences of this world. But instead, what's he do? His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day 
and night. And what's the, what's the result of meditating? He's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its, its fruit in season. His leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. As you journal, the goal with this thing is that we meditate on God's word. It's too easy just to go by. When, you're, when I'm, I've been writing these, these psalms this time, been meeting with some of my kids, we've been writing them. It's been fascinating for me as a dad to watch what their heart come out to see what God's doing. But even from my own writing, it forces you to stop. You want to hurry up and get this done. Forces you to stop and really think how this interacts with me. That's meditation. Fascinating. thing. Now, again, some of you might think, well, you know, this sounds kind of sissy and it's a girly kind of thing. God, hopefully I wouldn't want to call God sissy and girly, but God has reserved some, some, a whole section of scripture that we refer to as poetry. We refer to as the, the, the wisdom literature. And if you were to open the table of contents in your Bible, you'd see the first five books are called the law. And that really is God laying down the law and setting us up for that with Genesis. And then you get the next 12 books are history books, historical books. And they end with, start with Joshua, end with Esther. And you need to know Esther is really the last book of your Old Testament. It really is the last book. Because in the next five books are your poetical books, which were written during history, right? Things going on. And then the rest of your books, uh, 17, I think, are prophets. And they were written during the historical books. But you have a whole line of, of poetry. And you might think, well, oh, man, poetry. Yeah. Why does anyone go to poetry? The reason why people are driven to poetry today is not to learn historical facts. I mean, it's, 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 it's not that. It's to learn the heart. I mean, we can read in the historical books about how Saul chased David and David ended up in a cave. But the Psalms tell us what was going on in David's heart and mind when he was on the run and when he was in that cave. The the Psalms, they, they tell us that prophecy is the heart of God for his people. In the prophets, you've got God in tears. You've got God angry. You've got God suffering. You've got God sharing what's going on inside him, if I can say it that way, to his people. Poetical books are the heart of God's people to him. Our faith can't just be an outside thing. It's got to be an an inside thing. We need to understand some things about Hebrew poetry, though, because this this is what we're going to encourage you to do. We want you to write your psalms. You don't have to hand them in. We're not going to publish them or anything. Maybe you can publish them, make some dollars one day on this. But what you can do is write your psalms with Hebrew poetry. Let me, real quick, because you might be saying, well, how do you write a psalm? Hebrew poetry is fantastic. First of all, it always has a context. Okay? Don't don't think that... um, a guy just sat down, David, uh, I'll write on uh, the goodness of God. Yeah, that's what I'll write on today. The Psalms always have a context. The poetical books, think about Job. Everything bad happens to Job, right? He's a wealthy guy. He's a leader in his community. He's trying to stamp out social injustice. He's a great dad. He, he loves his wife. And then one day, disaster strikes, right? And, and uh, an accident and some clever maneuvering by the competition, and suddenly his assets are wiped out, and he goes from mega wealthy to red ink overnight, and he's trying to figure this out. And then someone walks in and says, by the way, your kids were all partying, and a tornado hit the house, no survivors. And then he wakes up the next morning, and this this horrible disease has broken out on his body, and he smells, and it's inconvenient, it's uncomfortable, and he's asking, oh God, what's going on? And then he's got some friends who show up blaming it all on him. 
The book of Job is, I mean, how would you deal with that, right? The book of Job is, is how Job dealt with it. As he's writing to God and talking, he's, he's defending, he's angry, he's crying, he's sad, he's pleading. It's his heart. And it gives us a good picture on how a godly person goes through those things. Not just a simple thou shalt be good. Goes through. Think of Ecclesiastes. Solomon, a, a great guy. He's got lots of stuff, kind of like Job, but he doesn't lose it. Instead, what happens to Solomon is midlife crisis. And he looks at all of his stuff and he says... Is this what life's all about? I thought, really thought if I had this, it would fix, but it's not. This over here I chased for a while, and it's not. And so the whole book is what's going on inside his heart and his mind as he's thinking through the meaning of, of life. Song of Solomon. You got, you got the, a diary of a girl. Talks about her dating this guy, and he's such a hunk, and he likes me, and he said this, and what her girlfriend said, and then about the honeymoon. You can imagine Song of Solomon. It gets pretty, pretty warm at places. It's, it's her... It's her journal. The book of Psalms, same thing. Every single individual psalm has a context. We don't know them all, but we know some of them. For example, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel 11 and 12 talks about Samuel and the Bathsheba thing. Not a good thing to talk about in church, right? But Samuel and Bathsheba thing. But David's thinking he got away with it. Nathan comes to him and says, no one else knows, but God does. Not a good thing, David. He goes into his bedroom, Closes the door, pulls out a pen, and writes Psalm 51. If you want to know what's going through his heart, the heart of someone who's truly repentant, am I repentant or not? Read Psalm 51. That'll give you the picture. The Psalms have, have a context. As we write our Psalms, don't just decide, well, I'm going to write about this or that. Uh, I'm either I'm going to write about God's omnipresence. Stop and think of a time in your life. Maybe now. And the difference God's presence has made in it. Uh, Psalms are also are, are uh, Hebrew poetry. Very simple. It's very simple. It's not worried about rhyming. You know, I had a dog. His name was Spot. Blah blah blah. It's not worried about rhyming. It's not worried about meter. Like you're writing a sonnet, you got to get the right amount of syllables. Nah, no. Nah, Hebrew poetry is free, man. It's free. But it works. It works off of two lines. It's either a couplet or a triplet. Okay, uh, two lines. Line A says something. Whatever. Then line B either is either going to do a couple of things. So don't know this as you write your Hebrew poetry. You, you state something line A. Line B is either going to reiterate it just using different words. This can go all over the place. We've got Psalm 51. Can we see this slide? Psalm 51. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Let's look at verse 2. Line A, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Line B, and cleanse me from my sin. Same thing, right? Next slide. It says, for I know my transgressions. That's line A. Line B, my sin is ever before me. Basically the same thing. Against you, you only have I sinned. Line A, line B, and done what is evil in your sight. It goes on and on and on and on. So in Hebrew poetry, you state something. Second line can say the same thing, just use different words. Or you state something, line A, and line B adds to it. And you can go all over the place with this one too, but I think we got Psalm 77. It says, I cry aloud to God. That's line A. Line B, aloud to God, and he will hear me. Uh, he, he, he adds some. Not just I'm calling into the darkness, my, my sound voice is bouncing off the ceiling, but, but line B, he adds to that. Uh, third thing that Hebrew poetry can do is it says something, line A, but line B can contrast. The heart of a man plans its way, but 
That's a contrasting word. The Lord directs his steps. You see this a lot in Proverbs, where the wise man does this, but the foolish man does this. And then the fourth thing that line B can do is it can compare. We've got Psalm 42. As the deer pants for flowing streams. That's line A. Line B. So pants my soul for you, O God. Psalm 73. I don't have this on the screen, but he's talking after he's struggling with doubt. He says in line A, basically, I was struggling with doubt. In line B, he says, when I did, I was like a brute beast before you. It's a, he's got a comparison going on there. Now, you, you might be thinking, stay with me, because you might be thinking, yeah, but it's dealing, when you're dealing with inside stuff, it's like emotion type things, and that kind of, and I'm not into that kind of stuff. Um, a lot of folk, folk aren't, but perhaps they ought to be, because God is emotional. Uh, sometimes we try to cover over and deny our emotions, especially the dark ones, because we want to be strong. I don't want you to think that I'm failing spiritually. I don't want you to think that I'm tripping and falling, and so I'm going to cover that up and hide those. And so we want to be strong and hide our emotions. But it's interesting. The Psalms, 150 individual songs, the vast majority, the majority of them are not joy. The majority of them are depression, pain, discouragement. They're lament psalms. U2's Bono. Let me see if I even got this. He was interested. Just recently, he had an interview with uh, Focus on the Family, believe it or not. It's kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? But he says this. Uh, In the interview, they asked him about the psalms. He says, what's so powerful about the psalms is, as well as there being gospel and songs of praise, they are also the blues. I like that. They are. The Psalms are the blues more than they are anything else. They're the blues. Uh, as you think about emotions, a couple things. Just be thinking about this. First of all, emotions are not problems to be fixed. We think sometimes if I got a bad emotion, I just got to fix this. I got to fix. If you try to fix your emotion on that level, you know you're never going to fix it. Emotions are not something to be fixed. Their voice is to be heard. They're like the red light on your dashboard. Yeah, you don't, don't, don't ignore it. Don't pretend it's not there. Something, it needs telling us something. Now, I, we need to pay attention. The second thing about emotions. Emotions are not morally neutral. Some folk, the word is out on the street with some folk that, you know what, it's not emotions are not sin. It's what you do with them that's sin. Well, no, that's not true. Every part of me has been affected by the fall, Right? Mentally, part of me, I mean, I can think wrong things. I can, I can think I'm thinking right things, but be thinking wrong things. Uh, mentally, I'm affected by the fall. Physically, we don't need to make a case on this one, right? I can be affected by the fall. Emotionally, you know what? I'm affected by the fall. Sometimes my emotions are not godly. Sometimes I'm angry. It's not righteous anger. It's because my pride was stepped on. It's because I need to be in control. It's because I felt like I was looking bad in front of you, and I don't like that. Emotions are not righteous things, but they're not to be denied. I mean, God is big enough when we bring our um, emotions to him. Now, you might be looking at that going, well, I'm still not sure I understand this whole writing a psalm thing. Let's look at a case study for just, just a just a couple minutes. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it. But Psalm 42 and 43. And here's the deal. So we look at this real quickly. Because if you want to go back and do quiet time stuff, you're not sure where to go, go here. Because last week we addressed the number one external uh, obstacle to worship as when evil reigns and it looks like God's not around. The number one internal obstacle to worship 
is the silence of God internally. Turn with me, Psalm 42. Again, we're just going to point out a couple of things. Psalm 42. 42 and 43 psalms, by the way, just so you know, in the earliest manuscripts, they're one psalm. And I think as, as we look at it very briefly, you'll say, oh yeah, I guess they were one psalm. They're one, one psalm. 42, verse 1, by the way, you know the Psalms, uh, David wrote some, Moses wrote one, Solomon wrote a couple, David's worship leaders wrote some, guys in David's worship department wrote a handful of them, some of them we don't know who wrote, so it's a lot of folk. But 42, verse 1, it says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. And the picture is that the deer has doesn't wait till she's dying of thirst before she goes and gets some water, right? She goes to the riverbed. But the riverbed is dry. Well, now what do I do? Well, now things start to get serious if she goes to all the places where she knows the water is and it's not there. And so she's starting to pant. She's in a dangerous situation at that point. And he's saying, I'm in a dangerous situation, God, because I have come and I can't find you. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. That's ever been part of you. He says, says, when shall I come and appear before God. He said, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Actually saying, when shall I come before the face of God? Or when uh, He's lost a picture of the face of God. He's lost that presence of God, that personal relationship that he felt so strongly for the longest time. It's not there. Have you ever been down this road? Where you, you're suddenly, our, our, our God seems so distant. And he's not present and you want him to be this guy wants him to be it's not like he's off doing drugs someplace and doesn't give a rip he's trying here but god is, is, is not there and so he's crying out please god please where, where are you can, can you just just show me your presence just in, internally let me know that you're there not there how in the world do you worship when that's what's going on what an inc- what an inc- incredible o- obstacle now, now, notice this guy's issues, too. They're not um, rational arguments that he picked up in biology class somewhere. Oh, yeah, maybe there isn't a God. That's not, this is all emotional for this guy. It's a sense. It's an understanding. It's that, that feeling of God is gone. Now, you lay that on one of your Christian friends, and what will they say? Well, it's, you know, you need to rebuke Satan, and you need to plead, plead the blood, and you need to claim victory, and you need to count your blessings, and you need to confess sin. So you say, okay, God, I've been pleading, count. So you start pleading the blood and claiming victory and counting your blessings and, and confessing sin, and you do that in nothing. And so you figure, well, I, I haven't done it enough. So you confess it louder, and you make up sins that you don't, you don't think you've really done, but you're going to confess them anyway just in case, and you're counting blessings, you, and you've got it all down. You're rebuking Satan so many times, and you get done, and still, a deafening silence. And you go, what's next? Now, now sometimes we bring this... Uh, absence of God in your life on ourselves. And we decide we get, we're going to get tangled up in some sin, or we get tangled up in some sin, and we want to have our cake and eat it too. We want to keep doing this, whatever it is we're doing, and still have God bless us. And God doesn't work that way, and so we feel absent from Him. Sometimes we bring this on ourselves because we uh, start surrounding ourselves with influencers, with voices that are not uh, of God's Word. And you've got to know. You've got to know. That if you surround yourself, whatever marinade you put around yourself, sooner or later you're going to taste like. And so, so, but this guy, this is not his issue. I mean, as far as we can tell, he wasn't doing anything wrong 
and this just came on him, please know if you're walking with the Lord, sometimes this happens. It happens to all of us. It's just going to sometime. And if you don't know what to do with it, it can spiral into a major, major spiritual crisis. He says in verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say all day long, Where is your God? Now, we don't know if this is this guy's issues. Let me point out a couple of causes, though, that I think we see here. Um, Just in case you're finding yourself there today. There's some, I think there's some causes. Verse 3, and I hope I'm not reading too much in the text, but either way, I'll just put that caveat on it, caveat on it and go for it. Um, it says, my tears have been my food. This guy is not eating, which is a sign of depression. He's just, in, he's just is, is wrapped up in his sorrow, and he feels so bad, so much sorrow, he's not interested in eating. He's not interested in eating. And he's not sleeping, right? Day and night. If you're going to be bawling all night. You're not usually doing that while you're awake. And so this guy is losing his sleep. Now here's the deal. Sometimes we something bad happens and it throws us physically into a downward spiral and we end up uh, worse and worse and worse. I wish I could tell you, as some folk will tell you, that it's just a moral issue. Just buck up and make it happen. Just be obedient. And I'm all for obedience, trust me. Uh, but we're holistic. And if, in fact, physically there's a major issue, you know what? It's going to affect every part of us. Let me ask you gals specifically. Uh, if, in fact, hormones are out of balance, might that impact other aspects of your life? Might that, might that impact your, your outlook of life? And guys, don't answer this, right? Might that impact um, how you respond, how you, your, 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 just your enjoyment of life? Might that, yes, that impacts it. If you've got a chronic issue, and you know this, if you've got a chemical imbalance, might that cause you to say, affect us and say, God, where are you? Yes, it might. And so this is not an infomercial for Hammett, but if in fact you're in that category, you know what? You might want to make an appointment with your doctor and just go in for a physical. Just clear that up, get that out of the way. Let's let's deal with that. Uh, Another cause that's, I think, brought up here is uh, verse 4. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. He's, He's remembering here. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. This guy was a leader in corporate worship stuff. And he was, that was those that was thinking back. Man, those were the days. And I had so much joy and God was so close and I was involved and I was part of it and I was there. But not anymore. If you were to look down into verse uh, 6, he says, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Hermon, Mount Hermon, we don't know some of these other places, but Mount Hermon is way in the north. Now, the temple, what he's talking about as far as this, this leading them in procession to the house of God, that's down in Jerusalem. So he's way up in the north. Now, what's he doing way up there? Maybe he want to, got a new job, he went on vacation, who knows what it is. Maybe he's in exile, but either way, he's separated from the community. Now, here's, here's the deal. 90% of Americans think that they can be good Christians and not go to church. God would say otherwise. If you separate from the community, 
and you decide, if you just, if you separate from, from community because your community's dysfunctional, because there's a bunch of hypocrites there, because, well, you know, you're never gonna find any place because everybody's dysfunctional and has issues, right? Everybody. Let's just be honest. We all do. And if you wait for the perfect one, it's just, you're just never going to find it. And if you do find it, don't join it, cause, right? Cause you'll ruin it when you, when you, when you join it. Um, <laughs> You can't, the way he said it, you can't worship him. And sometimes when you separate from, isolate from the body, that feeling of God's absence grows exponentially. You don't go down that road. Just don't go down that road. The third thing that he points out is uh, we see it in verse 3, the end of 3. It says, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? They are saying this to him. This guy obviously has let people know he's a believer. And that he believes in God. And now they're coming at him. Down in verse 9, he says, I say to you, God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. His enemy's oppressing him. He says, as with deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? I have a group of Christian family. Um, mom and dad believers. My sister graduated from Moody. I graduated from Moody. My two, two of my brothers graduated from Moody. I've got two nephews who are pastors. Two of my brothers are ordained. My sister's, my wife's only sister was a missionary in New Guinea. Again, definitely not a perfect family. I can write a soap opera on them. But, but a Christian heritage. But what I know from talking to some of y'all is you don't have that. Some of y'all are from a situation where it's not just you might even be the only believer. Some situations are just hostile. Well, when you get together, you can just count on mocking and taunting and ridicule. In my work, I don't get mocked for my faith, just so you know. Mocked for other things, I don't get mocked for my work in my, my faith. Some of y'all, I know, because I talk to you, when you're in your workplace, uh, no doubt, not being obnoxious, just letting folk know that your believer has cost you jobs and promotions in the deal and contracts because not everybody out there is happy in Christianity. And when you get enough people coming against you on a regular basis, that just wears on you after a while, doesn't it? just wears on you. God, this is a great place to vindicate me. Lord, show up. Will you do something? Quiet. What do you do? What do you do with that? Uh, verse 7, he says, Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and waves have gone over me. In other words, I'm drowning, Lord, and it's your fault. He says in verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? What have I done? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? I don't need to be doing that. It's with a deadly wound in my bones. I'm dying. He says, my adversaries taunt me. And he says in verse 11, Why are you cast down on my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation, my God. 43.1, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. I'm trusting in you. Why have you rejected me? Do you see this guy's progression? First of all, I don't feel you, God. Then, then maybe you've forgotten me, God. Now you've rejected me, God. This is progression. This is where he's going. Why do I go about mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. Then he says in verse 3, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. This, this is a key verse, y'all. Uh, this Send out your truth. Then I will go to the altar of God to guide my exceeding joy and I will praise you with the lyre. Oh God, my God. That's a little harp thing. In verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil against me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise in my salvation, my God. Now, this is a real important verse. 
I would say this is the, the critical one in this whole text because we see it in 42.5. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil uh, within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise in my salvation my God. We see it in 11. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise in my salvation my God. We see it in 43.5. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise in my salvation my God. Listen, this is, this is why this is so critical. If you're going to survive when you get hit with the absence of God, and we all are there sometimes, what you have to do, what you have to do is what this guy did. You have to learn to preach to yourself. We've got to be honest with our emotion. And if we're journaling, we're, we're, we're writing a, a psalm, we, we be honest with our emotion. But you can't stay there. Listen, there is nothing spiritually mature about self-absorption. I know some folk who are very honest with their emotions, but they just stay there. They just, this guy, he's very honest with his emotions. I mean, he's in despair. He believes God's ripped him off. God's hurt him. But he stops. He says, wait, 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 hang on. Heart, soul, shut up for just a second. I know what you're saying to me. Just be quiet. Let me tell you what the truth is here. The truth is God is my salvation. The truth is I will praise him one day. Now, maybe not down here, but I will praise him again one day. If you go through this, this is a great text because it's speckled with his doubts and concerns and issues and problems and also with the, I love God and God is my rock and and God is my joy. He keeps going back and forth, but he has to stop and tell himself what the truth is when we journal. Again, it's not a not dear diary. We're not just giving me all my woes. I such a bad live such a bad life. Poor shame. You know, I feel bad. I feel awful. You know. It always ends with theology, with the stop, with the remember. Got to be honest before God. He's good with that. But we have to go back and say, what is truth? And if you don't get to that point, then the spiral will just continue and just continue, unless God in His Grace intervenes, but we can do something. Remain reminded of his truth. Twyla Paris, she was a artist. I don't even know if she still uh, does anything today, but she was a recording artist many years ago. She wrote a psalm, um, Do I Trust You, Lord? Not in the manner of Hebrew poetry. She's kind of stuck with the Nashville, our culture kind of thing. But still, this is her heart. You can only imagine what she's going through. Uh, actually, I know when she was going when she wrote this, she was struggling with, with infertility and, and so much wanting a baby and it wasn't, wasn't happening. So she penned this song. She says, Sometimes my little heart can't understand what's in your will and what's in your plan. So many times I'm tempted to ask you why. But I can never forget it for long. Lord, what you do could not be wrong, so I'll believe you even when I must cry. Do I trust you, Lord? Does the river flow? Do I trust you, Lord? Does the north wind blow? You can see my heart. You can read my mind. And you've got to know that I would rather die than to lose my faith in the one I love. Do I trust you? She says, I know the answers. I've given them all. But suddenly now I feel so small, shaken down to the cavity in my soul. I know the doctrine and theology, but right now they don't mean much to me. This time there's only one thing I've got to know. Do I trust you, Lord? Does the robin sing? Do I trust you, Lord? Does it rain in spring? You can see my heart and read my mind. And you've got to know that I would rather die than to lose my faith in the one I love. Do I trust you? And then she she ends with this great words. Declaration. She says, I will trust you, Lord, when I don't know why. 
I will trust you, Lord, till the day I die. I will trust you, Lord, when I'm blind with pain. You were God before and you'll never change. I will trust you. I will trust you. I will trust you, Lord. Uh, Several weeks ago, we talked about singing. Remember this? We said that when we put our voice to sound doctrine, that transforms us, that shapes us. Likewise, when you put your pen to, to... Something even contrary to your emotions. You've, you've okayed your emotions. You've, you've voiced them. But still, you put your pen to, I. this is where I'm at. This is who you are. This is where I stand, oh God. And you sign in it. Something, something transforms within you. It grows you. Now, where are you at today? Have you faced or are you facing now the, the ancients would call it the dark times of the soul where God is just... You want him to be there. You really do. He's just not. And you would say, God, as the deer pants, my soul pants. I I want to know you. Where are you? Knowing that, feeling that is not wrong. But when you come and you say, soul, trust in God. Can you imagine? I would think that that's probably the greatest form of worship. Not necessarily major praise. But saying, God, I'm blind with pain. I don't know what's going on. But I trust you. We can worship God no matter what. 